And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022, and I have my good friends, Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital, and Dr. Michelle Mazir, who is the president of the medical staff at the hospital. How are you, ladies? Great. We're really good, and I'm looking out my window, and it's quite rainy and cloudy and yucky, and it's May, but it sure doesn't feel like it. Well, you must be looking out a different window than I am. <laughs> no, I agree. It's uh, It's been quite a rainy April, that old April showers uh, song has carried right over into May, hasn't it? Sure has, but I guess we're out singing in the rain, right? I, I guess. <laughs> I hope things aren't so gloomy within the walls of the hospital. And, you know, it sounds like things were getting a little bit better for a while at least. So can you give me an update on your COVID patient census? I certainly can. And you're right. They were getting better and they're still not horrible, but they are not necessarily trending in the right direction. So the last time we spoke was on March 15th, and at that point we had five inpatients with COVID. One of them was on a vent, and we were waiting for two results. And today we have 12 inpatients with COVID, one on a vent, and awaiting two people for uh, results of whether they're positive or not. Uh, Last time we had 287 COVID deaths to date, now we have 292. So we have had a few people die for over the last month, uh, a little less than a month, actually. Oh, no, a little over a month. So uh, not as many like we used to have, but still we ha- are having some deaths. DuPage County went from 207,000 COVID positive to 218,000 COVID positive, and their deaths went from 1,770 to 1,798. So it was still more deaths in the county. The state went from 3.05 million to 3.15 million. And the state deaths went from 37,345 to 37,906. And for the good news, we have discharged COVID patients. We went from 2,891 to 2,964, and we still have the same 97% recovery rate. I don't want to draw any conclusions from you having five inpatients, you know, a month and a half ago and having 12 now, but does it seem like there might be another spike ahead of us? Well, I'll tell you, we've gone up and down. So we've gone up to 10, back down to eight or five or seven, and then back up again. 12 is our highest we've been in quite a while, but hopefully it's not going into a spike range yet. Um, And I think as as we go on, Dr. Mazzaro have more information on that potential. I do think there's a lot more positive COVID people out there. They're just not getting hospitalized. So I think when we had the spike before, it was probably the same number of positive people, but they they were getting hospitalized because either they weren't vaccinated or their comorbid conditions. But this time, um, because we have more people vaccinated, I think we have less being hospitalized. But Dr. Mazir can correct me on that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think we are definitely seeing an increase in numbers in the outpatient world. 
um, but those people in general are doing well. And I think Pam's right on. I think the numbers of people that are vaccinated or have some immunity, um, although you can still get COVID, you're much less likely to end up hospitalized. So hopefully what we see is even as the numbers on the outpatient um, side go up, that the hospitalized numbers will stay relatively low. Have either of you heard this this theory that the southern part of the United States and the northern part of the United States, and if there are future spikes, are kind of out of sync, and that the south, you know, plans that they think that they'll spike in the summer and the north in the winter. Wonder a if you've heard that, b if you think it's true, and c why might that be? Is it a climate thing? I'll tell you, I don't think that we are seeing so much climate spikes. It looks like our spikes are more every few months. And personally, what I think they're related to is what's going on in society. So we saw spikes after Thanksgiving, Christmas holiday. And I think what we're seeing right now in the outpatient world is the spike after um, Easter and spring break. And then I think what we're going to see going forward is um, our local prom have the potential to be super spreader events. So I think it's really related to what kind of large gatherings are going on um, and whether or not those gatherings can be inside versus outside. We know that having gatherings outside is much safer um, than everybody being inside. But I don't necessarily know that we will see this kind of, you know, fall, winter um, pattern like we see with the flu. I think uh, a lot of those problems might be over. So, um, and I know there's obviously a delay from the time they actually happen till things start spreading in the schools. So uh, let's cross our fingers and hope that is not the case. Um, I've asked this before, and I, I, I'm going to ask it again because I don't know if things have changed. Are the formulas of the vaccine still the same as when they were first authorized? Still the same. Yep. Okay. All of the formulas are still the same. Nothing has changed. And is, is there anything on the horizon that you've heard of about a change in formula to maybe target the uh, Delta variant or any other variants for that matter? I think that as we go forward, the pharmaceutical companies will work on creating what they'll call a multivariant um, vaccine to kind of incorporate some of the variants that we've seen, um, just like we do with the flu. And another question that I've I've asked before, um, but I don't know if the you know the medical community has changed their position on that. And that is, is does it make sense to stick with the same vaccine that you got in your initial doses if you're going to get a booster, or should you go out of your way to get a different vaccine, or doesn't it really matter? I don't think that people need to go out of their way to get a different vaccine, but now they are allowed to. So when we first started all this, they really recommended that you stick with your, the vaccine that you had as your primary series for your booster. And now I think it's really more of a, whatever is available, um, you really should get. But there's a caveat to that. If you have had two Johnson & Johnson shots, then you, you still can get an mRNA booster um, after the two, after two Johnson and Johnson, so that would be that would probably be the only place that I would recommend that people change is um, if they had Johnson and Johnson, then they should get an mRNA booster when the time is right. And is it which vaccines are approved for a second booster? Yeah, so you know, I I want to spend a minute on this because I think it is horribly confusing for everybody. So 
the primary series is the two doses of either the Pfizer or Moderna and one shot of Johnson & Johnson. And then anybody who has significant immunocompromise, they are actually eligible for a third dose that is not necessarily called a booster. So at three months, if you are immunocompromised, you get your third dose of your vaccine. And then after five months after your primary series, that's when you get your first dose, your first booster. And then an additional four months is the second booster. But the second booster right now is only approved for 50 and older, um, really anybody 50 and older, and then immunocompromised 12 and older. So that would be the second booster four months after your first booster if you're 50 and older or if you're 12 and older with significant um, history that leads you immunocompromised. And would you recommend the second booster for most individuals that are that are eligible at least over 50? I would. I think that here's what we're seeing. We're we I I have said this from the very beginning. The goal of the vaccine and the boosters is not to prevent you from getting COVID. It's to prevent you from being in a hospital in an ICU on a ventilator. And I think that for the most part, the vaccines and the boosters are still doing that. So yes, you might still get COVID, but again, you'll just get cold symptoms and have to isolate for that five-day isolation period. So I recommend everybody get boosted. That's over 50, right, at this point? Correct. Everybody eligible. Does it appear that they'll change that to younger folks should get double boosted also and and I mean, I know I'm asking you to get your crystal ball out, but do you think that'll happen? And then do you think there'll be a third booster eventually for those of us that are over 50? I, I think at the rate we're going that, yes, in the fall, there will probably be an expectation to get another booster. And then I think everything is a little bit up in the air with the pediatric boosters. We know that both Pfizer and Moderna have applied for EUA um, but what people may not know is that those applications are not complete yet to the FDA. So the FDA is waiting for some additional information from both companies, and they plan to meet, I believe, in June to really kind of iron out um, vaccines for the younger population, and hopefully they'll address boosters in that population as well. So now I'm going to apply my medical degree that I got from watching Marcus Welby and Quincy and all, all these other these other shows and and that is it as i recall even the flu vaccine sometimes doesn't prevent you from getting the flu but the case of the flu you get might be less severe is that correct correct so how does that actually work in the body is is it it takes time once it once the virus takes hold to for the um for your antibodies to to build up or how does that work that it, it, it kind of lets it take hold and then it, it fights it. Your, your medical degree is correct. That's exactly okay. what it does. So your antibodies, um, your body produces the antibodies when exposed to the flu virus. And so hopefully what will happen is you will get a much milder case of the flu or a much milder case of COVID than someone who has, no antibodies or no previous exposure. So they're, it's new to their body completely. So I know a couple of folks that I would say were in pretty good shape for the most part and not, not, not real old in their late 40s to mid 50s who had COVID 
um, before the um, vaccines were out, and they experienced long-term effects of COVID. And eventually it kind of seemed like they got over it, but, you know, not really sure. So my question is, have they come to any conclusions, a medical community, about who might be more susceptible to having long-term effects, or is it kind of hit or miss? So I think there's still a lot more to come on that because long-term, we, we haven't even really reached like long-term yet, I don't think. But I think the problem with it is it's un, unpredictable to some degree. It's like you said, you know young, healthy people that you wouldn't have expected to um, have long-term effects. And I think we can, we all know someone who, who fits in any part of the spectrum. So we know young, healthy people who were sick for a few days and then they were fine. And then we know people that maybe had a lingering cough for several weeks or shortness of breath for several weeks, several months. So I think that the spectrum is pretty wide. And, you know, I think the easy thing to say is that the people who, people who are high risk, so they have multiple, you know, medical conditions are high risk for doing poorly from COVID are the ones that um, are going to have some of these longer term symptoms. But it doesn't mean that someone who doesn't have those high-risk conditions can't have long-term symptoms right now. Can you kind of uh, classify the the types of things that you're seeing in terms of long-term effects? Um, I know cognitive issues seem to be something people talk about and, and obviously heart issues and things like that. Are you seeing all that and what else might you be seeing? And do you think that most of these long-term effects will eventually you know, people will recover from, or do you think they'll have lingering effects in some cases the rest of their lives? So I don't think that we know how long these um, long-term symptoms will last, unfortunately. I think probably the most predominant thing that we're seeing is some lingering respiratory symptoms. So, you know, people are used to getting a cold and in two weeks being feeling better, and we're seeing now that some of these respiratory symptoms like the cough and the shortness of breath can maybe last for months before it resolves. Um, and yes, some cognitive issues um, that are taking a while to resolve as well. And then some of the people who are losing their taste and their smell, um, we've had some patients that have lost it for over six months before it came back. Wow. So that's aggravating. That's, I just can't imagine that. Well, maybe it'd be good for me. I'd really wouldn't want to eat then then maybe losing some weight would be that much easier for me um, <laughs> what's uh what are the therapeutics that are currently being used i know we've talked about some over the last couple of years but i'm i'm assuming that there are are new ones yeah so currently for those patients who are um ambulatory meaning they're not hospitalized we have two options right now so we have monoclonal antibody infusion. So it's basically giving you an injection that contains the antibodies to bind the COVID and hopefully prevent, you know, the, the COVID virus from giving you damage to your organs and requiring you to be hospitalized in the ICU, ventilated, that kind of thing. That's the goal of the antibody treatment. And then, and we are fortunate enough to have um, supply of those. We, we have no shortage of that. And then the other um, treatment that is can be used for people who are diagnosed ambulatory are um, antivirals. So we have access to antivirals. The you know the only problem with the oral antiviral pills is it's a little bit 
body where they are available in pharmacies. So that's been a little bit of an issue for patients, but I have seen recently that it's getting better. So availability um, of those oral antivirals should be getting better. So two options, but if, if people are high risk, so older age, multiple medical problems, obese, and they think they have COVID, they should definitely be tested because there are treatments available to uh, make them feel better and prevent them from being hospitalized. And somebody that is generally in good health and let's say 40 years old, they test positive for COVID. They don't necessarily, um, or they shouldn't necessarily call their doctor and get a prescription, right? Right. Really, it's for really aiming to treat the people that are high risk um, of doing poorly from COVID and ending up in the hospital. So young, healthy, no comorbid conditions, they're, they're, they have, their chances of doing well without anything are pretty good. You mentioned that uh, some of the the oral antiviral therapeutics you're having trouble, or some patients are having trouble getting, depending on the pharmacy. Are the monoclonal antibody treatments plentiful again then? Because I think at one point they weren't. They are. You know, our pharmacy has done a really great job um, keeping an eye on this and keeping us in supply for what we need. And right now we are, right now we're good. Great. Uh, one last thing I want to ask about is um, virtual doctor's visits, virtual care in general. We heard a lot about it a year and a half, two years ago, that a lot of doctors were doing it. I'm just wondering if it's here to stay, if there are certain doctors that that's all they'll do now, um, certain patients that that's all they really want to do unless they have to come in. Um, is it is it changed the industry? Is it going to? Or is it going to revert back to in-person visits like pre-pandemic? So I think for sure the pandemic has changed the industry. We were doing video visits before the pandemic, and then we saw a remarkable surge in the number of video visits that we were doing as soon as the pandemic hit. Um, I, I mean, it was exponential growth in that area. And I think that what we found is that there is, a certain subset of the population that really likes that video visit and that, you know, the convenience of that, and they are not going to change from that. They want that going forward. We actually have a group together working on all things digital in healthcare. And one of the focuses of that group is how to optimize these video visits. So I think that it is definitely here to stay, but I think the thing for us to remember is that it's not for everybody. So there are some people who, you know, maybe are not adept at the technology. And so we know that we still need to be um, offering our in-person services just like we, we always did. And then some things are just not amenable to a video visit. Um, so we, we definitely know that video visits are here to stay, but we are not going to back down on the care that we give in person. The other thing related to that is that, um, you know, the payment system changed and allowed for video visits. If that reverts, then there may be a problem with video visits, but right now it's still in place. Uh, it was a temporary change, but hopefully it'll become a permanent change and video visits will be reimbursed for what they can do. And um, But we do, just do see a lot of people who want to come in and we wanna make sure they have that ability to come in as well. It, um... It seems to me like it would be in the insurance company's best best interest to to pay for those, and you know I don't know maybe it's a reduced rate. I I don't know how that works, but 
it seems like there's a lot of cost savings potentially in the long run if some patients do choose to receive their care that that way and some doctors choose to provide the care that way. And then my, my other question around these virtual visits is, is it is it similar to an in-person visit in that there might be a nurse that does that that pre-doctor screening process and kind of gets that out of the way and then the doctor can come in and has all that information at their fingertips before yeah. before they get online? Okay. The technology is um, pretty incredible what you can do and see um, through a video visit. And yes, and screen a screening process is done to make sure that somebody is really the appropriate for a video visit. And then we have also, um, you know, maybe they need testing out of their that video visit. And now we have the opportunity to send them through our drive-through at Downers Grove so they can get the testing that they need, that they would have had maybe in the office. Now they can get it um, in the drive-through setting. And I wonder if all these uh, these online camera filters that people use, if you can use those to look, look better for your doctor. <laughs> look, Look thinner and have would, your skin look perfect, you know? I would not recommend filtering for your doctor's <laughs> your doctor's appointment. I, I figured you'd say that, but I had to put that out there. So um everything everything going all right with the merger. I'm sure there's still some growing pains here and there, but you're all figuring it out. Of course we're figuring it out. It you know, we all know what when organizations merge, there's a lot to learn about each other. And we're in that learning phase, and then there's a lot of redesign that happens. And so it's kind of like you have to destabilize everything and then restabilize. So we're in that kind of chaotic period of figuring ourselves out and what we need to do for the future as a, as a whole system. But, you know, the fact that we have a lot more resources now, we have a, a lot more geography and patients that we can serve and, um, and learn from each other best practices is going to make us stronger, but we just got to get through this kind of chaotic time of getting to know each other and redesigning things. Well, I know you'll get through it. You always do. But uh, thank you, uh, ladies, for spending some time with us today. I appreciate your hard work. And I, I know that, you know, this has just got to seem like a nightmare to you. It just keeps going on and on. And uh, hopefully in the next uh, couple of months, this will, like Dr. Fauci initially said, maybe the maybe the pandemic is about over and it's into the next stage. I, I hope so. I'm not so convinced it is, but um, thank you. We'll pray for you and appreciate your time. Thanks, thank Brett. you. Have a great day. You too. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.